0: Good morning, folks. Shall we turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 20 as we continue our sermon series? Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is fighting everyone, it seems. Uh, Before I read the passage, I just want to tell you about um, a friend of mine who fairly recently moved to the area, who is a winemaker. And uh, I asked him before I knew this, I said, oh, what brought you to the area? And he gave the coolest answer I think I've ever heard. Oh, the soil is so good here. What a reason to move. And I really like talking to him about his job, about working the vineyard and turning the grapes into wine and stuff, because the kind of look on his face, he comes alive, and it's as though what he's doing there is is like something magic. And you kind of are are enthralled in the process of winemaking. He he was telling me that uh, every vineyard basically has its own wine it wants to produce, and you need to find out what it is. Like this is kind of like a living place. These aren't just fruits growing, but there's this kind of potential there, which there's this excitement in, in the cultivating and, and, and growing of. And so when we come to this passage where Jesus draws a, 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 an analogy, a parable from a vineyard, I want us to think about that kind of thing, about the potential that comes from a vineyard, how it can bless other people with it. So let's read uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 19. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it out to some farmers, and he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another tenant, but that one also they beat and and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third And they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew He had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its challenges. We thank you for its encouragements. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand it, receive it, and live it out this morning. Amen. So if you did a deep dive over the summer when we looked at the theology of the Gospels, then you probably heard me say that We should not think about parables like they're allegories. And what I mean by that is, when we go to something like the parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance, the point is we're not supposed to say, right, who does the Levite represent? Who does the donkey represent? Who does the innkeeper represent? We're not supposed to find symbolisms in all the elements of the story. The point of a parable in all of Jesus' parables is the point of the story is the message that he's giving. So the point for instance of the good samaritan is your neighbor is the one in need. You're not supposed to kind of dissect every other element of the story. The the parable of the mustard seed for instance is the kingdom of God grows slowly but surely and becomes big. Okay, you don't need to work out all oh, what are the tree what are the birds that come and perch in it. You don't need to work out all the elements. That is true in all parables except this one. So and there is a reason for that. This parable is one of those parables which is more like an allegory. And that's because Jesus is developing this from a different part of the Bible where it's used as an allegory. So some of you may remember months ago, we, uh, when we were preaching an earlier part of Luke, there was a section where I, I went into Isaiah 5 to show us how the vineyard parable there. If, this is, Mike, let me see if I can remind you. We sang a version of Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen that was reworded with the Isaiah 5 lyrics. Andy played guitar, Lauren sang, in order to see that what's going on in Isaiah 5 is that there's this allegory that Lord, the Lord gives through Isaiah. And it's this, the Lord has established Israel, his people, in order to bear fruit, in order to be like a vineyard that produces fruit so that the world outside can be blessed by this fruit. But if they are going to bless the world outside, they need to be producing fruit themselves. And we talked about how uh, Anne and David own a farm. They, they're the farmers there, and yet it would be impossible for them to make use of all their produce. The farm implies that it's there for those outside. Yeah, does that make sense? You should see the amount of eggs that David Baker produces from his little chickens. You could not eat them all, could you, David? No way. No way. They are for people outside the farm. So Israel is not just there to be kind of God's little people doing their own thing. They are to be fruitful so that the world outside may be blessed. But the message in Isaiah 5 is God came to see his vineyard. He came to the place where he was expecting good fruit. He came wanting to find ripe, tasty, good grapes through which the world could be blessed. And instead he found bad, sour, rotten grapes. And so in Isaiah 5, it says, so what is God going to do? He's going to destroy that place. It is no worth to him. If he has put all the effort in to dig out the vines, to to put the wine press in, to build up the walls, and yet it produces nothing, it's not worth the effort. And so Israel knows this story. Isaiah is a very popular book in first century Israel, so that the Jews know the story of Isaiah 5. They know we are the vineyard that God is expecting good fruit from. So when Jesus is in the temple speaking to them and says, Let me tell you about a vineyard that someone has established, a man planted it, and he's given it to others to tend it, they're going straight to Isaiah 5. That's what Jesus is doing, that's what they're hearing, and that's what we should hear too. This is a story of how Jesus, the son who has come, has come to his people, he is looking for food. If you look at what it says, it says, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, if we look at kind of this historically, this is the picture of God sending the prophets. So when you go through your Old Testament, all the prophets don't come at once. They kind of come in batches, if you like. And what happens every time? Israel reject them. Israel persecute them. Israel chuck them out. Think of the story of Elijah, for instance. He gets so worn out with his mission of constantly preaching to a people who don't want to hear him. And he goes off and he spends some time at Mount Sinai. And he just says, Lord, it's only me left. I'm done. Just kill me now. Because he's been so spurned by the people who are supposed to be receptive to the message that God has brought them. So they send away the servant. And it gets worse because the first one, they just send away empty-handed. They beat him and they send him away. The second one, they beat and they treat shamefully. That's not; It doesn't kind of say what it is, but the implication there is something that should not have happened to him has happened to him. And then they sent him away empty-handed. So there's a progression in how they are treating these people. And then the third one, They wounded him and threw him out. The message that these farmers, that these people who are entrusted to produce this vineyard are sending to the owner is, you have no place here. This is our vineyard. But the owner, who wants what he wants from his vineyard, continues to send. He doesn't just step back and say, fine. No, the the owner has a mission. He wants to do something with his vineyard and he's going to achieve it. So he says, these people who I trusted, who I hired, they're not listening to my servants. Maybe I shall send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will actually give him the honor that is due those other people I sent. Perhaps finally I will get some response from these people I've entrusted with my stuff. When the tenants saw him, they talked it over. This is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, in one sense, this is kind of completely illogical because if you think about how an inheritance works, the inheritance belongs to the owner. The son isn't walking around with the owner, Oh, uh, sorry, with the inheritance. So the farmers, by killing the son, how are they going to get the inheritance? Right? It's not like... They oh, just kill him, and then we say to the owner, your son's dead, can we have his stuff now? And he goes, well, yeah, if the son's dead, you may as well just take it. No. So there's kind of an, there's, even though they're planning, even though they're thinking this through, it's as they talk the matter over, even in their thinking and talking and planning, they show themselves to be complete fools. The inheritance isn't going to be yours if you kill the son, and yet they do it anyway. They kill the son, they throw him up the vineyard. Now, obviously, again, If We go back to the kind of historical fulfillment of this, of the prophets being rejected, the prophets being treated shamefully, prophets being chucked out. And now we come to Jesus, the son, the one whom the father has said, I want fruit from this vineyard. Perhaps they will listen to the son. Now, of course, we know the story and Jesus knows the story, even though it hasn't happened yet. They take him outside the city and they kill him. So then Jesus asks this question. Now, if this were just a story, then the answer would be very obvious. What then will the owner do to these tenants? It's obvious. At the very least, he will fire them. But they've killed someone. And the Bible says very clearly that the punishment for murder is the death penalty. So... They are going to be put to death. They're going to face justice for what they've done. But notice that Jesus has to answer his own question because the people know what this vineyard represents. They know their own culpability in the story. And so Jesus says he will come and kill them, but that's not enough. And give the vineyard to others. Notice the owner has not changed his plan. He still wants this vineyard to be fruitful and to bless what's outside of it. So just because these people have been unfaithful with what they've been trusted with doesn't mean that the owner is done. So he's going to take the vineyard and give it to others. When the people heard this, they say, God forbid. Why do they say that? Because we don't think it's fair that those owners should be uh, giving it to someone else. Those other people worked really hard. No, they don't care about the story. They know their place in the story. Here the Son of God is among you. And Jesus knows in a few days they're going to reject him. They're going to kill him. They're going to throw him out. They know, the people know already that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the ruling leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. They're making this quite plain. So what they are hearing is you who are so secure with your status as people. You Israelites who are so proud of the fact that to you belongs the temple and the adoption and the prophets and everything. You who are so proud of who you are because what God has done for you. If you are unfaithful with it, it will be taken from you and given to those who will produce fruit. And so they say, God forbid. And I just love what Jesus says. He says, "Okay, well, answer me this then. What is the meaning of this psalm? So they're there, they're saying, no, 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 no. God forbid, that's not going to happen. God would not take the vineyard from Israel. He would not give it to other people. Jesus, says, well, what does this mean then? And he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, you're a builder. You're in a team of builders. You're building a house. You find a stone and you say, this stone is a load of rubbish, and so you chuck it out. If that stone goes on to become a cornerstone, a load-bearing stone, a central stone in another building, the implication is, it's not a building built by those original builders. See what I mean So we've got the stone and we've chucked it out, we're not gonna go out and bring it back in and build our house with it. We start building our own house over here. It's gonna be other people who come and find that stone and start to build their house. So when Jesus says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, he's saying the same thing as this vineyard will be taken from you and given to others. There is a house that's going to be built with this stone, but it's not the one that you're building. So the challenge here to them is what house are you building? So Pope preached a few weeks. A really central point there is the temple where your identity is. Or is it the God who dwells in the temple that's your identity? What house are you trying to build, Israel? And then Jesus adds to it, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him. Why? They knew he had spoken against them. This isn't one of those parables, like the parable of the sower, where the disciples come up to Jesus afterwards, and went, um, "What were you just talking about there?" You find that quite a lot. People hear the parables, and they go, huh, yeah, right." This isn't one of those parables. There, Jesus is, is the temple, preaching almost the most directly he's ever preached, giving a stern warning and challenge to Israel. Where is the fruit? What house are you building? Now, this is where it gets a bit complicated, because how did this come about historically? So we know that Jesus died. We know that the the tenants, if you like, killed him. We know that uh, Israel was judged in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was leveled. We know all those kind of things. And we know, that in some sense, the vineyard has moved to other owners and other other tenants because none of us are dwelling in the land of Israel. And I don't think many of us are descendants of Abraham or any of us. So in a sense, we can see that now the vineyard is under new occupation than it was, right? So we don't have a Sanhedrin. We don't have Uh, synagogues. We don't have the temple. We're not dwelling in Israel. All the things that mark first century Jewish worship are not true now. But is it as simple as Jesus died and then God goes, right, well, I'm not interested in Israel anymore onto the Gentiles. No, it's a bit more complicated than that. Could spend the whole of today going through how complicated it is, but we're not going to do that. So let me do it very basically. Imagine you have a family have five kids. You adopt two kids and you've got seven kids. Um, your family all have brown hair. You're quite distinctive in your your brown hair and facial makeup. The kids you adopt are pale-skinned, ginger, very clearly not yours by blood. But nonetheless, they are your kids. So there you are, parents, seven kids. Two of them look very different from the rest. Now, I want you to imagine that three of your kids, uh, this is, you know, probably not going to happen. But imagine three of your kids all completely... Went off the rails, rejected the family. They all legally were uh, had a family divorce, emancipated from your ha- families and new names, new identity. You legally have no relation to them anymore. So now, the amount of adopted kids—I've actually done the math wrong here, so you have to forgive me—but the number of adopted kids, if I've done it right, is now greater than the number of natural kids. Why give me that face? Am I I confusing? Let's do this from the beginning. Two natural kids. That's all I have. They look like me. They got brown hair. They got very, you know, I don't don't have brown hair. Okay. Great. And then we adopt two kids. And they have ginger hair and very pale skin and don't look anything like this family that I'm talking about, which isn't me because I have pale hair and kind, kind of pale skin and kind of ginger hair. Okay. So, two adopted, too natural. One of these kids rails against what it means to be in this family, does not want to be in it, does not care about the background, heritage, any of those things, and they are legally emancipated. They are, they are divorced from this family. So, legally, we now are not family anymore. But I've still got these two kids over here and one of them over there. So now I have three kids. One of them is natural. Two of them are adopted. Have I replaced my family? No. Have I changed my kids or changed what it means to be the family? No. It just happens to be that those who came from outside is now greater than those who were on the inside. Does that make sense? So, in the book of Romans 9 to 11, Paul goes through this argument. He says, Has God rejected Israel? No. They rejected him for the most part. Most of them did not want whatever it was that Jesus was offering. The son came to the vineyard and the tenants beat him up, killed him, and threw him out. Most of them saw the cornerstone and did not want it in the building that they were building. They rejected him. But. When the gospel goes into the Gentile world, thousands upon thousands pour in. Thousands upon thousands want to hear about this message of Jesus. And the church goes from being 99.9% Jewish to very quickly 50-50. And now, historically, about 90-10. That's not a comment on race or anti Semitism or any of those things. It's just an observation that the family, the original tenants of the vineyard, decided that they did not want what they were called to do. So I, I, the only reason I'm kind of going into this is because when we read these parables, it's important to understand what Jesus is saying when he's saying it. When he says that the vineyard is taken from you and given to those who will bear fruit, there is something that happens, but it's important that we understand how. Okay, now we've got that technical bit out of the way, I want to get to the really important question of so what? Because the message that we've come from the beginning here is that God has planted a vineyard because he wants fruit that is going to bless the world. And what we've seen in this parable is despite the challenges that come in that, despite the original tenants not living up to their role, that is still God's aim. And so he's not abandoned the vineyard project, if you like. He's got new tenants, you and I. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. We are now charged with that commission to do what the original tenants failed to do, to bear fruit through which we can bless the world. Now, I think a really big part of this parable for us is a warning. So uh, this is also what Paul does in Romans 11. Paul says, you Gentiles who have come in, do not be arrogant. If, he uses the analogy of an olive tree to describe the people of God. And he says, if God did not spare the natural branches, that is Israelites, Jews, neither will he spare you. So consider then the kindness and severity of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 11. So in one sense, this parable is a warning. God has taken the vineyard from tenants who failed to produce fruit before. He will do it again if he needs to. And that is a challenge that comes to us corporately as the church worldwide, locally as the church here in Odium, and individually as believers in Christ. What are you doing in the vineyard? Are you producing fruit? I think that's a real challenge. So the, the, the picture here is like your house, your little area, you've got a little patch of the vineyard there. And that place is supposed to be producing fruit to bless those around it. The, this building, this church, this gathering here, we're a little patch of the vineyard and we're supposed to be producing fruit to bless those around it. And the master sends servants to come and receive fruits. When God comes, if God comes to the Vine Church, if something happens here, do we want to say, go away, it's our vineyard? Or do we say, here are the fruit that we've produced? It's like Poe said a few weeks ago, God will say if he needs to, I want my church back. But there's also, I think, not just a warning and a challenge, there's also a real encouragement here, I think. The Lord has given us the vineyard. And just like I said at the beginning, my friend who who works on a vineyard for 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 a job, when he talks about what it's like to be a vineyard tenant, to be someone who works on the fruit, he lights up because there is joy and there is magic in that. Guys, you are entrusted with God's vineyard. There is fruit to grow. Like I said, he says that every vineyard has a wine that it wants to produce. You have to find out. We have wine to produce. We have things to bless the world with. I was chatting to my uncle yesterday who works, he spends about 50% of his time in the Middle East. He supports missionaries over there. And uh, I just asked him what kind of fruit is the gospel bearing in the Middle East at the moment? And he just, you know, well, let me tell you. And the first thing he told me is that uh, a few weeks ago he was chatting to uh, an Orthodox, Coptic Orthodox priest in Egypt who told him that in the last five years, he has baptized four to 5,000 Muslim converts. One priest. And all the kind of other people in his community are kind of relearning the art of evangelism because the Orthodox church for, for hundreds of years has just been kind of in, in maintenance or decline mode. And the, the the phrase that he said stuck with my uncle and now sticks with me because he said, we have not found a new mission. We have rediscovered the mission we were already entrusted with. And when they've done that, what's happened? Thousands. told me another story about a church in Beirut, which 10 years ago had 100 members and had done so for years and years. Now they have 45 satellite congregations like we have with Odium and Church Crookham with a membership of something like 15,000. There is incredible fruit being born at the moment in the places where the soil is the toughest. And so I think one of the things we need to be reminded of is guys, just because it might look like our patch of the vineyard is struggling a bit at the moment, it doesn't mean that the vineyard in total is, is. And just like that person had to be reminded of the mission that that God had already given them, I think maybe we do too. So for instance, yeah, we do Alpha, Christianity Explored, whatever, we wanna do evangelistic courses, we wanna bring this in into the church as well, but also each of us can be sharing the gospel in our own lives with people around us, not just in Acts, not just you know preach the gospel at all times if necessary, use words. The gospel is a message that needs to be communicated And so the challenge of of a parable like this is, guys, are you growing the fruit? Are you sharing it? Are you letting others come and taste it? Yeah, some people will reject. Some people don't want that stone. They don't want it to be the cornerstone. And the sad truth is that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Nonetheless, we put forward Jesus. We bring our fruits. We keep tending the vineyard. We keep turning the soil. We keep looking for what kind of wine this vineyard wants to produce. We are tenants in the vineyard of God. It's a privilege and a joy. So as we go out from here, as we leave the doors in a few minutes, let's be reminded that you're either in vineyard or wilderness. Are we extending the vineyard or not? Are we sharing that message? Are we bringing it to a world that needs it? Let's pray. Lord, first and foremost, we just wanna thank you that even though this world is broken, you have not abandoned it. That you have a mission that you are intent on fulfilling. That is to see fruit born, to see grapes produced and sweet wine flowing from your vineyard. Lord, we repent of all the times that we fail to be the uh, the tenants that you want us to be. Of all the times we value our own work more than um, the work of producing that vineyard. Lord, for all the times that we think that the vineyard is ours, for all the times that we don't receive the servants as we should, (coughs) and Lord, we just say, help us. Help us to be your tenants. Help us to share our fruit with the world around us. Give us boldness to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, may we, through the power of Jesus Christ, see this world transformed. See wilderness turned into fertile soil. See this nation turn to the Lord. May we see in our area, four to 5,000 converts being baptized Thanks, Lord. Amen.